Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. You did hear correctly. We do have our biggest retreat of the year starting this evening. And you're like, what is he doing? Yeah, so if you think of me, pray for me. But also, pray that students may experience the deep, amazing love of God as we talk about that this weekend. So one of my favorite hymn writers was actually a pastor in Scotland and in England. His name was Henry Francis Light. He wrote my favorite hymn, which I guess it's hard to tell what's your favorite, but he wrote one of my favorites, at least. It's called Abide With Me. For most of his life, Henry was debilitated by illness and sickness and physical suffering. He wrote this hymn as the biblical link between Luke 24, 29, which the disciples asked Jesus to abide with them, for it is toward evening and the day is spent. His daughter recounts a story of Henry, his last, one of his last things he did on the earth before he finished the words to abide with me. He preached a sermon in really extreme physical ailment, basically limping into the pulpit against his family's wishes, and he preached one last sermon on Holy Communion, and in the evening he placed the finished copy of Abide With Me in the hands of one of his dear relatives. I'll revisit the words of that at the end, because I always think it's fun to end, to start something at the beginning and you're like, when's he going to say it? We'll do that at the end. This psalm, Psalm 38, and Henry's life are an example of drawing out one question. When the effects of sin, my sin, and other things come up in my life, where do I go? Our main idea is this. In Psalm 38, the psalmist experiences the pain of sin, the effects of sin, and the hope of God's grace. I believe for you this morning, this psalm reminds us that we all live in a fallen world and experience our own sin. But there is hope for us through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit's power, do a great work in us this morning. And through your word, in your name we pray. Amen. Our first point is this, the pain of sin and the effects of sin. And as you can see, it's a selection of different verses throughout the psalm. I kind of draw, been drawing off the last couple of weeks of thinking about themes in certain psalms and not just like breaking up into sections in that way. I just think that he goes to this often. And so I think that's a really helpful way for you to think about uh, what's going on in this psalm. So the pain of sin and the effects of sin. I also wanted to start this psalm off by reminding us of a couple of things. Uh, psalms talk about the word lament. Lament could also be referred to as a faithful complaint. A faithful complaint where we're giving these things to the Lord. And I wanted to spend some time from John Bloom, who's a really helpful theologian, as he was thinking about these terms. Lament, or faithful complaining, does not impugn God with wrong. It is an honest, groaning expression of what it's like to experience the trouble, anguish, and grief of living in this fallen, futile world. God does not mind this kind of complaining. In fact, he encourages it. 
and teaches us how to do it, you guessed it, in the Bible. Look at Psalm 142. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. That is a really good model for how to take your sin, pain, struggle, grief to the Lord. But oftentimes, and I do say often, many, many times, we rarely go there. Instead, we do the opposite, which is grumbling. John Bloom defines grumbling as faithless complaining. And I think the Bible does as well, and it warns us not to do that. (laughs) Grumbling complaints directly or indirectly declare that God is not sufficiently good, faithful, loving, wise, powerful, or competent. Otherwise, he would treat us better or run the universe more effectively. Faithless complaining is sinful because it accuses God of doing wrong. So I think we have to really learn that lesson and receive the lesson this morning on those two types of things. So let's see how David does this. You'll see the subheading at the beginning. It says, a psalm of David for the memorial offering. Basically what David is doing here at the beginning is he is asking God to remember him in his pain and suffering. That's what he's doing. Now offering could be he's sacrificing as a, as a repentance as part of that too. He's repenting as part of God remembering him. I think that would be really something good for us to remember this morning. But it also draws out a really important thing. What is David's biggest problem? Is it people? Is it those that don't like him? Is it his world? Is it that he doesn't have enough money? Like what, what is his biggest problem in life? It isn't physical. That's important. It was God bringing to mind something through his physical experience and his conviction of sin. So let's look at first the pain of sin. Charles Spurgeon said, sin is a heavy burden. Has sin ever been heavy to you? Sin is a heavy burden and it weighs us down and it crushes us. It makes us feel ashamed and guilty. But God is a load bearer. And he is able to carry our burdens for us. Psalm 38 is a cry for help. And it is a reminder that God is always willing to help us carry our burdens. Look with me in verse 1 and 2. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. It's at this point I really want to make a clarification that I think might be helpful. I think two things might be happening in this psalm, and you kind of have to pick one when you preach. So one of them would be that David is actually in physical pain, and that physical pain is, is eliciting or it's drawing out his life. And all of the guilt and and the weight of sin that he feels, and he's confessing it to the Lord because of this really intense illness that he has. That is one way you could interpret that. But there's another way as well, I think, which is it is imagery. It is imagery about a physical reality. That he is so overwhelmed by the feeling of sin that he has that 
he is using this imagery as a way to express what's going on in his heart. I think they're both really, you could take both well, but I think I'm going to stick more with the imagery part for now. But I think they may both be true in this psalm. So either way, I think we have a main idea that's going to help us out, okay? So that main idea would be the same no matter what, which way you take it. In Psalm 38, the psalmist experiences the pain of sin, the effects of sin, the hope of God's grace. So back to those first two verses real quick. It says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor in your discipline, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. David is in serious emotional pain. I think that's pretty clear. He feels as though God's wrath is upon him. It's weighing him down. It's burdening him. It's like arrows sticking him with conviction. David's unconfessed sin is now coming out in a bodily response too. It's like his whole being is responding to this problem. So why is sin such a big problem? Well, I think first you've got to answer what is sin. Sometimes we can start saying words in church without really knowing what we're talking about. Sin is one of those. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him. It's interesting. Living as though he didn't exist and only my pleasure in life is what's most important. Not being or doing what he requires in his law. Resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. So he sees sin, but he comes to God, and I want you to see this, as though he were a child. And his father, and his father knows that he's done wrong, but so does David. It's like when my kid comes up from the basement and I haven't heard anything for a long period of time and there's nothing but silence. I know something's wrong. And he goes, Dad, don't discipline me in your wrath. Everything's destroyed downstairs, right? Uh, he knows he's done wrong. The amazing thing is that's exactly how God wants you to come to him. I know I've done wrong. And you notice he doesn't blame anybody else except himself. He's not making excuses for sin. He's just saying, this is what I know that I am a sinner. And I've done wrong. Don't discipline me in your wrath. Because I feel your arrows in me. I feel it on me. I know that sin is a big deal, God. So, he continues to describe what sin feels like. Verse 3, look at it. It says, there is no soundness in my flesh. Because of your indignation, that means God's like wrath again. He can see it. He knows that sin is bad. And there is no health in my bones. I'm, not, I'm feeling physical distress and I can't get better because of my sin. Verse 4, for my iniquities have gone over my head. It's like he's drowning. That's the imagery there. It's like a wave, just like if you're in the ocean and you can't get up and it just keeps hitting you and bombarding you over and over again. That's what he's going after there. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. He 
One of the things that David is doing is he's expressing to God how guilty or how much all of this stuff, the physical side of things and the spiritual side of things are creating such chaos in his life. He's just being very vulnerable and honest with God about the experience of his life. Sometimes we can just hide it, though. Like in the movie, when they hide the body in the basement and they think no one's going to find it. But as soon as someone comes sniffing around, they're like, what stinks? Right? And that never works out in films and it never works out in your life either. We can't just hide things away from God. Why? Because he sees everything. He already saw what you did, what you thought. He already knows everything about you. So we can't hide those things from him. So don't. That's the point. And others are starting to see it in David's life. You can see that in verse 12. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. Others are starting to see his weakness and his sin, and they're going to take advantage of him. Verse 19 and 20, but my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Some of us can experience that, right? It doesn't feel fair when the wicked have health and we don't. And they just keep coming right after us, right? Trying to get, get their way, and here we are trying to do good. That's David expressing his heart to the Lord. But I think in summary, if we were going to summarize this point, David is experiencing the reality of when God brings sin to light. Now, there is physical components to all of those things that I'm not, don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> I understand that sometimes our bodies break, but that's where we're going to go to next. The effects of sin. In this psalm, we have a very graphic description of physical suffering. He speaks of his body being broken, bruised, sick, diseased, and full of wounds. And he also speaks of his pain as being burning, piercing, and unbearable. And in one of the verses, it almost feels like he's having a panic attack. And some of us know firsthand what it's like for your body to not be what you want it to be. For your physical life to not be what you want it to be. Some of us have really felt the effects of a broken world on a broken body. I've been to enough funerals now to tell you that I've seen it. I've been to enough hospital visits, enough surgeries to know that the world is broken and its effects are everywhere. Look at verse 10. This is the anxiety attack part I was talking about. My heart throbs. Other translations say, my heart beats uncontrollably. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. Meaning like I, there's no joy. It's all melancholy. Verse 11, my friends and companions stand aloof. They're standing away from my plague. My nearest kin stand far off. Now that could be physical that he actually has a plague, <laughs> he has some disease on him, or it could just be they stand away from me because of my pain, because of my sin, because of the, my foolishness, the things I've done. 
Verse 17, for I am ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. All I see is my hardship, God. I want us to know that's not where David stays, though, is it? That's a really important distinction we've got to make is that, yes, he acknowledges in all truthfulness the experience of his pain in this sinful and fallen world, but yet, what does David do? He doesn't just stay there. He goes somewhere, doesn't he? What hope is there for us when all we see is pain? All we see is our sin. What is our hope? O Lord, verse 9, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. Did you know that God sees you? And you're like, well, if God saw me, he'd heal me. Hmm. That's a really interesting sentence I've heard. And I've even probably said it to God in my own way. So what hope is there then, if that's where you feel like you are? Jesus can sympathize with your suffering. God's not aloof. He's not somehow standing like, why aren't you doing better? Look at Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, that means... They don't want to look at him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We didn't want him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was still pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities or sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. It is very interesting that when Christ felt his extreme, most extreme physical suffering, it was to buy your freedom. When he felt the greatest amount of grief, dying for his enemies, those that don't even want his forgiveness, he cries out from the cross, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So where can we go when the weight of guilt and sin or the pain of a broken body, where do we go? The man of sorrows. One acquainted with grief. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And finally, our second point, in your repentance and pain, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. So let's look at this first, repentance, and we'll also talk about pain as well. First part, repentance. True repentance, Jonathan Edwards says, is not a mere change of outward behavior, but a change of your heart. It is not a mere reformation of life, but a renewal of the soul. I'm often shocked by the Bible. Some of you are like, what? <laughs> yeah, the Bible shocks me a lot. The king 
of Israel, David, who is in ultimate human authority, tells you how bad he is. He just not only writes this to the Lord, prays this to the Lord, but he shares it with other people for you to see how bad he is. What other religion or king does that? Not one that I've ever seen. And he's open about it. These are burdens that are too heavy for us, aren't they? Verse 4, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Oh, I understand, David. I get that. But it keeps ending up back on us. What do we do with that? Well, we confess it. When our sins become heavy and our burdens too full, we confess them. And our first step is to repent. Look at verse 18. I confess my iniquity, my sins. I am sorry for my sin. John Calvin said this, David confesses his sins or his iniquity, and not only so, but he is troubled by his sin. For he expresses a deep sorrow for it and a fear of the punishment which he deserved. Yes. And then you follow that up with Charles Spurgeon who said, if you are, a troub- or if you are troubled by your sin, you know what? Then you are right where you need to be. You're right on track. What? <laughs> well, listen. True repentance begins with a sense of sin. The weight of those things against God. It is a sign that God is, or sorry, and it ends with a life that is free from sin if you come to Christ in faith. So do not be discouraged if you are troubled by your sin. It is a sign that God is working on your heart and you are on your way to victory. What must you do? Confess your sin. Turn to Christ and receive freedom. And he promises he'll do it. And then we also have that pain we talked about. You have a perfect example of pain and what to do, not only in David, but in your perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. They're both prime examples of what to do. Second, wait on the Lord. C.S. Lewis said, waiting on God is not just sitting still. It is also a matter of being active in prayer and worship and studying of Scripture and of serving others. It's really hard to wait on the Lord when all we care about is ourself. When all we can see is us and we see nothing else. Waiting on the Lord is an active thing. And we see that. David asks the Lord the hardest question I think a human being asks sometimes because we fear that he won't answer us well. The psalm actually ends like this in verse 21. Do not forsake me, O Lord. Oh my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So in our times of dealing with disease, ailments, stress, anxiety, loss, hardship, and sin, what does our response look like? That is a very revealing question. And I think if I was honest with you in weakness, I'm not really great at it. But however, by God's grace, I'm trying to learn. Trying to be honest 
with my life while waiting on the Lord in prayer. I'm going to read it again. This is what David asked God to do while he waits. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Be close to me. Show me you're close. And Lord, please come to me right now and help me. If you ask God that question right now, or you ask him that statement, I think we're afraid we're going to get silence. But God has answered you with real words, real voice to you today. God is going to say this to you. If you ask that question, you ask him to come close to you, and you believe in faith in Christ, what will he do? John 6.37 is one of the best passages in all of Scripture. It says, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast you out. I love one of the reformers. He said he was reflecting on this and he kept saying, But God, I won't get better soon. I will not cast you out. But God, what if I mess up tomorrow again and I do the same thing? I won't cast you out. But God, I am a horrible person. And I'm selfish, and I think only of myself. What will happen if I struggle with that again next week? I will not cast you out. What if I got angry again? I won't cast you out. God's way better at loving us than we are at loving him. So let's apply this. Let's first learn from the example of Jesus in waiting through physical distress. Because I know that's on our hearts. Let's learn from our example, Jesus Christ. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve of his crucifixion, he was about to pay the full penalty and weight of sin. Jesus, we get this little amazing interaction in Matthew 26. And it says this, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Is it okay to lament, church? Yeah. If Jesus did it, I think we can too. But you've got to really pay attention to what he does. My soul is very sorrowful. Some translations would say depressed. Even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What happens if the cup that you have to bear never passes? God's still really good. And he'll never cast you out. Lean into your suffering and know that it is going to do something. Sometimes it's where God does his best work. When we suffer a little bit on this side, a tenth of what Jesus has suffered, he shows you things. Now, as I promised, the hymn Abide With Me.
I picked two lines out of it. I will cry, so get ready. It's just so beautiful. As we think about the whole psalm, I think it so sums up a couple of things in these verses. First, it really just deals with the idea of the weight of our sin and longing for God to be gracious to us as we come and confess it to him, but also the promise of God's grace that he promises to give those he loves. I want you to just be touched by these words. Come not in terror as the king of kings, but kind and good with healing in thy wings. Tears for all woes, a heart for every plea. Come, friend of sinners, thus abide with me. Thou on my head in early youth didst smile, and though I was rebellious and perverse meanwhile, don't miss this, this is so good. Thou, oh sorry, thou hast not left me, but I have often left thee. Unto the close, Lord, abide with me. 